Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Welcome back, everybody. It's our dirty laundry podcast about white women doing shitty white things. (laughs) I'm Katie. And I'm Mandy. And we're talking about all sorts of shenanigans. (laughs) And this this really has been a tough, like a tough season because we started off um, talking about um, suffrage movement, then we moved into slavery. None of like slavery is not an easy thing to learn about or talk about, certainly. Um, but I think I, we both talked about how we think we were like more familiar with the, the broad strokes of that history. And this history of eugenics is not a history we were nearly as familiar with. And so Mm -hmm. it, it has just been, uh, yeah, a rough flow after the other. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about like contemporary things that were terrible. And before mm-hmm. we started recording, Katie's like, all right, let's change subjects, talk about something even worse. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just like out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, and Mandy, yeah. I've been so happy that you've been leading the teaching part of this, it, given your medical background and your science background. It's been so interesting and, and great to be able to pick your brain about things. And yeah, your background in public health and working in the ER, all of that. So buckle up, everybody. And if you haven't been listening, you can always jump in to this podcast whenever you want. You know, the episodes, mm-hmm. I think, can stand on their own. But mm-hmm. if you haven't been listening to eugenics and you want to go back and listen to the past few episodes, that would be a good idea to just get caught up. And then today, uh, Mandy is going to talk about sterilization. Hmm. Yeah. And what's been going on much more recently in our history than I think mm. any of us really are aware of um, what's actually really still going on terrifyingly, probably in a lot of places. So yeah, I know we've been kind of like teasing this episode. It seems like I've been talking about it and talking about this coming up mm. for a few weeks, but mm. then we had Kate back on and then we just took like a little unexpected break last week. And <laughs> but I think I, we like broke up a couple of episodes. I thought it was going to be one into two the last time. So I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, now we're finally going to get to talk about this, but hopefully it gave people um, some time to listen to the documentaries that I talked about that cover two of the things we're going to discuss. Can you remind everybody what the names of those were in case people want to watch them after? Yep. So one is called No Mas Bebes. And that one um, is a documentary that was released in 2015 based on some Chicana women in Los Angeles who were sterilized without proper consent in the 1970s. And that one, did I say that one's available for rent on Vimeo, I believe. Oh, right. Um, and then, but and it's like $5, so you should rent it. It's really good. And then the other one is Belly of the Beast, and that was mm-hmm. just released last year. That's about um, coerced sterilizations in California's women's prisons um, that was going on into the 2010s, I believe. Uh, um, 
And that's available on the app Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y. If you have a um, library card, that will get you free access to that. Um, also, if you have any institutional access, if you're a student at a university. So um, well, all of those are definitely worth watching. For sure. And just as a reminder, we link to all of the resources that we talk about on our website, which is ourdirtylaundrypodcast.com. And just friendly PSA to subscribe and share this yes. podcast if you enjoy it, which we hope that I mean, you do. Enjoys the wrong enjoy word. Enjoy being a weird word. Yeah. A Find loaded useful, word. I mean, um, yes. Something. <laughs> Com- I mean, compelled we, by it. Yeah. Hopefully we make it enjoyable to listen to <laughs> with too. our ranting. I do too. Uh, um, yeah. Well, I enjoy um, talking to you. I enjoy learning. And I am really looking forward to this because it, it is something I just don't know anything about. So yeah, yeah. hit us with your best shot. Okay. So a little background about the time period most of this stuff was occurring in because I'm like, this was all a lot of it going on in the 1970s. And I was like, what is up with the 1970s and why all of this had a resurgence at that point? Part of it, interestingly, occurred because of a family planning program that was passed under Nixon. So it was the Family Planning Services and Public Research Act of 1970, um, also called the Title X Family Planning Program. So it was specifically passed to provide federal funding for family planning services to low-income and uninsured families. And I was like, hmm, that seems like something that would be more of a progressive liberal policy. Like, I wonder Hmm. why this was so important and, like, passed under the direction of Nixon because it was he proposed the bill saying in a 1969 letter that U.S. women should have available resources to aid them in family planning and that economic conditions should not deter their access to family planning resources. But when you find out then (laughs) that a lot of these quote-unquote family planning resources to people of low income were really about restricting them from having children, then... Mm. It makes a little more sense. So in this time period, there was like this mass panic about population growth. There was some letter written and it's like, I can't remember. It's buried in all these papers I have um, about how if they didn't get control of the population boom, that Mm -hmm. the world could like run out of space to for people and resources for people by the 1980s. So a little Hmm. hysterical, like 10 years later, they're like, we've got to quit this now. The world's going to explode. It didn't happen. Um, But I don't know. I mean, they were pretty effective in some of the shit they pulled. So I mean, um, let's be clear. The world's not in a great state. Like they weren't like, it's it's not super awesome right now. I mean, I know in some metrics, like things are a lot better, but in other metrics, it's like, oh God, holy shit. Um, You know, what's interesting is, so we were born in 1980 and I might be making this up, but I kind of remember talking to my mom and dad who were very much like 1970s college kids, you know, living mm-hmm. the dream with long hair and smoking pot, I'm sure. So they, they, <laughs> <I> t- <laughs> 
Do you know? This sure. is like, we don't know this for details. Come on. I, I mean, know. tell I, me. I do know. This is tell a, me, one of my, <laughs> I know my, my dad, my dad is the best. He's the best, but this is, I love this story so much that my grandparents who I adore are like, you know, much more conservative, formal sort of people. And my mom's mm-hmm. parents and they with the first time that they met my dad or like one of the first times they met him, they, my mom and dad met in college and my dad's hair was like long and glorious. And he is very proud of his hair and he does have gorgeous hair. So <laughs> he does. They, he, really does. He, <laughs> he was <laughs> sitting on a couch and my grandma came up behind him and started to stroke his hair, his head, mm. thinking it was my mom. Just the oh, way no. you pet, the way you pet your, your child. child. Oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, hey, honey. And my dad, <laughs> he was like, hello, Louise, <laughs> like turned <laughs> up to look at her like, oh, dear God. So, yes, they I'm like pretty confident I have a sense of the general vibe of their lives in the 70s. And I, I think that this is true, that they like very um, that my mom, I think this I don't I could honestly have just like invented this whole story, but that they chose to have two kids as like replacements for them and no more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think there was like a push for that. That like, was a push. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was to like restrict families to two children. Um, and there was also this kind of hysteria about people on welfare taking up more resources than they should have by having oh, God. too many kids. This is the so whole welfare that, queen thing was yes. coming out around then. Okay, mm-hmm. then yes, and coming from Reagan when he was governor of California, and it, it, the other thing I'm really struck by is knowing the the like unrest and social movements of the '60s that were really agitating and pushing for racial justice and you know other other forms of justice like LGBTQ rights. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if we're seeing if it just feels very parallel to today, like. We've got this uprising and then there's this like retrogressive backlash, mm-hmm, panic, mm-hmm. fear. I, it just feels yeah. like a cyclical pattern. Yeah, like a cyclical nightmare. <laughs> or that. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. That, that, no, now that you say that though, I because California, of course, plays um, very heavily in this stuff that we're going to talk about today. And what years was Reagan governor there? Was it in that? that Okay, because I'm now that makes so much sense for why a lot of this was happening in California at the time. But um, but yeah, that would totally totally make sense for why that was happening. While you're looking that up, I will say that this act also um, provided funds. (laughs) Yeah, was it in the guess what? He began in 1967, left office in 1975. Yeah. I mean, totally. This is when this was happening in the stuff we're going to talk about in California. Crazy. Okay. That makes sense. So the act also provided federal funds for research to go into family planning. Um, And so we'll talk about where that probably came in um, to some of these things that happened. So this is not necessarily in a particular order other than what I just put it down on paper when I was compiling all of my stuff. But let's start and talk about the documentary and what happened in um, No Moss Babies. So this, as I said, was released in 2015. It was based on the Chicano women who were involved in the case of Madrigal versus Quilligan. We'll talk about those Mm. people. Um, Mm. That was brought in 1975. And it represented 
10 Chicana immigrant women who were sterilized at um, Los Angeles County USC Hospital, which was otherwise known as County in Los Angeles, between June 1971 and March of 1974. So it's called LAC USC. It's a public hospital located mostly in an immigrant community of LA's east side. Interestingly, little tidbit of trivia, the exterior was used as a setting for the soap opera General Hospital back in the mm-hmm. day. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's now um, closed and the hospital, the new facility is built nearby it. But a lot of this um, documentary, they went back and filmed inside the old hospital buildings mm-hmm. um, and they, the women like walked through the maternity wards there. It's kind of, it's a very haunting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, what was happening at this time? So it's largely immigrant. These women would go in who had just immigrated here, not speaking English. Um, a lot of them without any prior obstetric care before giving birth. Mm-hmm. And they would just be in labor in this county hospital where it was hugely overrun. And you would find like laboring women, no medications, like out in hallway beds and scratch stretchers, oh like yelling for help and not enough people there to take like care of them is how they describe under this. under yeah like underfunded public, under yeah, resourced yeah, yeah not enough people there understaffed like a lot of the um physicians running things were residents because of course that's mm-hmm. where you put a lot of residents programs where you um in mm-hmm. county hospitals so um that's what this was going on. And it, this documentary does bring up that there was this major push to control the population, especially with minority women. Um, and so there was money coming into these hospitals for this like family planning efforts, also for research efforts. So there was a doctor at that time who was a resident there who started to think to suspect based on just what he was seeing that Mexican immigrant women were being sterilized by the process of tubal ligation without their consent. So this like is after Dr. they Bryn- gave birth. Yeah. Like, so they okay. go in for C-sections. Okay. And they would have their tubes tied. So Dr. Mm-hmm. Bernard Rosenfeld um, was Jewish. And he brings this up in the documentary He's the grandson of a Torah scholar. And he said that like his ethics and morals from being raised that way is what pushed mm-hmm. him to really, um, bring this out into the light. So mm-hmm. he started like taking notes and writing letters um, and even recording conversations that he heard during all of these things and sending them in um, to people who were, I think it was just to, like hospital officials, which is what got him in trouble um, because he thought like, this is wrong. These people aren't being, they're not being really asked. So what was happening is they don't speak English. There's Mm -hmm. not a lot of interpreters available. They need emergency C-sections, most of these women, because that's when you do a tubal Mm -hmm. is during a C-section. And so they would basically just be handed papers to sign and not Mm -hmm. really described what they were signing. And they would tell them like, this is an emergency. You have to sign this. Or if you want pain medications, you have to sign this. If you don't sign this, your baby's going to die. And these women just, you know, some of them just wrote X's 
by the mm-hmm. lines for mm-hmm. things. But I mean, even without the language barrier and all of that, how many times have you signed papers when you go into a situation like that, where they're just like, mm-hmm. and this is this page sign here, and this is this page sign here. Like, oh, totally. It's something that could so yeah. easily happen because you're like, yeah, I'm here in the hospital. I'm clearly going to have to sign this if I want to get care. So and you, you would presume if you know why you're at the hospital, and I think it's like not an unfair assumption to say if there were any additional things that they were going to do that they would verbally tell you, like it wouldn't be right. a secret, you know? Yeah. 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 But these women didn't really, they didn't hardly speak any English. And so they're just like, well, I'm here to have a baby and I have to do this and sign it. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of them did not even know that they were sterilized until they were contacted by this documentary producer. Oh my God. Like decades later. Yeah. When they were doing some of this stuff and the women who were involved in the the case until the lawyer went and contacted them mm-hmm. anyway. So um, he started writing these letters, but he was just basically shunned by the rest of the physicians around him mm-hmm. and had his job threatened, had people follow him to his house, like threatening him about it. Um, but he gave some of this evidence to some young Mexican American lawyers who then agreed to take the case. Wow. Um, so they went and collected some of these, uh, individuals and then decided to take a case as, um, what do you call it? I've lost the term where it's a class action. Yeah. A class oh, action sure. lawsuit. Because mm-hmm. they thought that if they just did it individually, it wouldn't have mm-hmm. as much power. So in the documentary, they go through and they talk to a lot of these women who are still around. Um, and they go back and they go through their experiences. And it really is really moving to watch it, um, which is why I really encourage everybody to do it. The mm-hmm. woman named in the case is Dolores Madrigal. Um, mm-hmm. She was a factory worker when she went to LAC USC to have her baby, some of the things that happened when these women found out that they were sterilized, that then they tried to keep it from their husbands when the attorneys went to Mm -hmm. talk to them because they didn't want their husbands to know because culturally they all explained that they come from this culture where you just, you have a lot of kids, like that's what they value in family. Mm -hmm. And that's seen as like a source of pride to have a lot Mm -hmm. of children. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, by the time they were contacted, you know, were trying to have more kids and couldn't. So we're already struggling with that because they didn't know why. Um, And so then this attorney would come in and tell them what they were contacting them for. And if they're, they would say, don't talk about it in front of my husband. Um, and if their husband mm-hmm. came in, they'd have to change the subject. But, um, when Dolores's, mm-hmm. Dolores's husband did find out about it, um, and he was very angry, but not just at the hospital, he was angry at her and thought that she had done it on purpose. Mm-hmm. It was also just like, part of the cultural thing. He was um, a heavy alcoholic and he would say things to her like women to do that, do this to be with other men um, and their Mm -hmm. husbands never find out. And so she was then like put in further danger because then Mm -hmm. she was in this relationship with someone who was angry, alcoholic and abusive towards Mm -hmm. her after they found out about this. So this is like a common theme for a lot of these women is that they didn't tell their families what was going on. Mm-hmm. Even when they were in the court case, they'd go to testify and they would just say that they had a doctor's appointment to go to. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let anybody know. Um, one of the women in the film, her son finds out while they're filming the documentary 
and goes back and like looks through all of the newspaper articles from the time and um, is so angry at that time, obviously. And then also Mm -hmm. just feels so empathetic towards his mom Mm -hmm. that she carried this, the, all of these years and like never told family and never had anyone to support her. And he's Mm -hmm. just, you can see like the raw anger in Mm -hmm. him as he's learning Mm -hmm. about it, that she went through that all by herself. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one of the women who's um, highlighted in it is Maria Hurtado, and she is the cutest thing ever. And her (laughs) husband is like the sweetest man. They, at the time of the filming, had been married for 51 and a half years. And all through the film, they show them like dancing together in their yard (laughs) and talking and laughing. Um, And at the time that she was sterilized, she had had five women before. Then that's one of the five. Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) five children, five women. She'd had five children before that. And that was one of the things that these doctors would look at is how many kids have these women had before. And if they had had more children, were more apt to sterilize them during their C-sections because they thought they didn't need to have any more. But it did happen that some of these women only had one or two kids Mm -hmm. when it happened. Well, Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, either way, it's really fucking awful. Yeah, exactly. That's, and we're going to get to that exact point when we talk about some of these issues. Um, there was one, another woman, Consuelo Hermesillo, who was only 23 years old wow. when she was sterilized. Um, and she was one who specifically said that the doctors made her sign a paper while she was in a lot of pain and discomfort and told her she wouldn't get any pain medications until she signed the paper and then it said next to her signature on the paper, it says no mas babies por avidas. Um, No more babies for you, I believe mm. for life. Um, mm. But the other thing, so with the language barrier, these women were t- sometimes told that their tubes were going to be tied, but the image of your tubes being tied is then that they could be untied. Mm-hmm. So even if they knew that they were getting their tubes tied, they did not understand that it was a permanent procedure that your tubes are actually cut, mm-hmm. not tied. And it's not like you just go back in and undo it's it. It's not like a vasectomy. Yeah. That can yeah. be undone. Yeah. Right. And it, these women, so Consuelo was one of these women who all these years later said that even now she continues to have dreams where she will have another baby and she'll bring mm-hmm. it to her family who are in Mexico and they'll all be excited to see mm-hmm. that she's had another baby. And she says, it's a miracle that I know I'll never have. It's just like the most heartbreaking shit to mm-hmm. listen to these women mm-hmm. talk about what was happening to them. Mm-hmm. Um So the doctor that was involved in this is mainly, there were several, but one is Edward James Quilligan. Um, So he was a head at LAC USC of Women's Health. Um, He was noted by Dr. Rosenfeld and another female um, resident who did come out and speak against some of the doctors Hmm. to be someone who kind of, who pushed this idea that people needed to have tubal ligations. Um, He ended up getting dropped from the lawsuit, which is really irritating as hell because his lawyers successfully argued that he wasn't the one actually performing the procedures because he was just the head of the program overseeing the residents. Just the head. No responsibility. That reminds me of the guy. he wasn't actually in the procedure. What was the other court case that happened with the young woman 
that it was another Supreme Court case that has never really been challenged that said, remember the Buck, the, Buck v. Bell, the one yes, for sterilization in 1924. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that that doctor like died before. Oh, yeah. It wasn't he? So he mm-hmm. didn't. And and the court case was actually found in his favor. So it's not like, right. like he just sort of evaded any sort of justice. But it's, yeah, yeah that reminds me of this. Okay. Yeah. So he has still, to this day, he's denied that any improprieties took place. He was interviewed in the documentary and just doesn't think that anything wrong happened. He Um, acknowledges that this happened and doesn't think it's wrong? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He does. (laughs) Because he said that he he denied that they were pushing for family planning towards a specific group. He said they were offering these women services that they otherwise wouldn't have had resources to get and made the argument that when they've had so many children, like continuing to have C-sections would be dangerous for them. And this is brought up by another doctor in the um, next documentary as well. And he just denies that it was incorrect to do. He said, if you see a patient for the first time who's in labor, who has a large number of children, and one of the things you discuss with her is the possibility of tubal ligation, I think that's perfectly appropriate. Completely ignoring that this is not a discussion. I was this just going like, to say, like, yeah, discussing options and like being forthcoming about the implications of those options, I think, is totally fine. That yeah. is, that doesn't sound like that's what happened in no, this that is instance. Clearly, not what happened, especially when a lot of these women didn't even know what had really happened to them. Yeah, when they right. left the hospital, it's clearly right. bullshit. But also bullshit. <laughs> is the fact that these women lost this court case because the judge in the court case is a total POS. Um, and his name is on the honorable, not sure, Jesse Curtis. <laughs> and he found the defendants not guilty and said, the cultural background of these particular women is what contributed to the problem of these sterilizations <gasps> taking place. Uh, like grossness, grossness, grossness. The actual wording in the findings, he says, this case is essentially the result of a breakdown in communications between the patients and the doctors. All plaintiffs are Spanish speaking women whose ability to understand and speak English is limited. Misunderstandings are bound to occur. <laughs> <laughs> that wait, he's blaming no, I just need a second to sit with this information. He's mm-hmm. blaming them for not yeah. understanding the English that the doctors may or may not even be using to describe these procedures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. he also okay, says that furthermore, the cultural background of these particular women has contributed to the problem in a subtle but very significant way. And what this is referring to, so there's also an expert witness that they interview um, in this documentary that's also heartbreaking to watch because you can see how affected he is by this so many years later still. So he's um, an anthropologist who graduated from UCLA, and he was interviewed several times by the lawyers in this case just about the culture of these women and how much impact it would have on them to have their family size limited 
and how much that would affect them for the rest of their lives because their attorneys are trying to make the case that this was a huge thing for them. And so he interviewed these women and talked to these women over six months to like learn all of this about them. And he said that the judge used that against him and against these women, claiming that if it took him, an anthropologist, six months to figure this out, then how would the doctors have known? I'm sorry, maybe the doctors shouldn't perform life-altering permanent surgeries without being super clear and getting a translator and talk. Like, that is just so maddening. It's It's just, it's so infuriating. And I think especially because we are coming off the heels of the news about the court case in Texas that the Supreme Court did not do anything with. I think what's so frustrating is that this is all coming on the heels of the, I don't know the name of the court case that came out of Texas that the Supreme Court was like, yeah, that sounds fine, where you can, a random person can sue anyone perceived to be involved in an abortion for $10,000, including like you loaned your friend money, you gave somebody Mm -hmm. a ride, like, Mm -hmm. and it, and that person, the random person who accused you, if they, if they, if it was proven to be true, they would get money which to mm-hmm. me seems like it's just a very deeply fucked up incentive system. Mm-hmm. By the way, the only other time I could remember hearing about something like that, I'm sure there are other times I'm not a legal historian, was during the Salem witch trials that if you accuse someone of being a witch, you would get their property, which seems like a very dangerous incentive system <laughs> to set up yeah. for accusing people who don't have like old widows who had property like that weren't in a position to defend it necessarily like oh they're easy targets for that anyway it's insane i'm just very mad about all of this generally so to hear another court decision like the one in the buck supreme court case Mm -hmm. it was oliver wendell holmes that was such a dick Mm -hmm. and his Mm -hmm. findings or his whatever decision three generations of imbeciles are enough yeah Mm -hmm. thanks oliver i mean Mm -hmm. this this judge too it just is disgusting and it's infuriating to me I, i know there's been some attention in the news about the importance of all of these circuit judges and who is able to sit in judgment of other people and what their perspectives and backgrounds are it matters It matters. And I will just say to have justices be people who have this level of ignorance and and willful ignorance, I would say, Mm -hmm. they should not be judges. Oh, my God. It makes me so mad. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So the women lost the case, but there were several things in the case that did come out of it that are good. Um, So given this judge's argument that the language breakdown was part of the problem. It did (sighs) mandate that forms, consent forms be provided in different languages. So they had to make Spanish and other languages available and consent forms for people. It also presumes though that people are literate. I mean, it also presumes you can read and that you you can read and understand very Mm -hmm. complicated legal Mm -hmm. medical jargon. Like, what yeah. are the odds? Of, I mean, I guess it's a yeah. step in the right direction, but it certainly doesn't, like, fix the problem completely. I yes. mean, oh, my God. It also mandated that bilingual counselors were provided at county hospitals. Hmm. Um, it, I don't know what the details of this, but it said that minorities had to be better informed of their rights regarding sterilization. Hmm. And they could not threaten that their welfare benefits would be revoked if they refused, because that's one of the things that happened for it. 
One of the other things that it did, and this is where the lovely white women come in and make some problems, mm. is that mm. it's mandated that patients under the age of 21 would have to have a mandatory 72 hours to make the decision for sterilization. They wanted it to be all women would have 72 hours to make that decision. But then white feminists got all pissy about this, thinking that it was a limit on people's access to birth control procedures by mandating them to wait, kind of like the abortion laws that mandate you having... 72 hours uh-huh. to wait to have an abortion. They were just saying that's you, that's a restriction you're putting on women. And that's mm-hmm. totally coming from this lens of whiteness where we're only thinking about the way that we are interacting with the medical system. And we're not taking into account that a lot of these women are being exploited and don't understand what's going on and don't have time to like discuss these options and learn about it and talk about it with their families before it happens. Um, and it's, leading to things like this happening. So white women, white progressive women got all up in arms during this point in time um, because they were unhappy about that 72 hour rule. Um, It's funny because that it it seems just like such a different reason to wait, like to, uh, Mm -hmm. to get an abortion versus to have your tubes tied. They're very, very, very different outcomes. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Um, so that's, there's so many details. The documentary is really, truly worth watching to learn about Mm -hmm. these women and their stories and to see how bravely, like they still come out and discuss it even now, um, is definitely worth your time and your $5. So go find Mm it and we'll link to it. So yeah, you can have easy access to it. Um, So now we're going to jump to the next documentary, which is actually slightly more contemporary. And then we'll go back to some more of the seventies bullshit. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) belly of the beast was the next one. This was just last year that this came out and it talked about the illegal sterilization practices in central California's women's facilities and other female penitentiaries in California. It was um, the documentary itself was made over a period of seven years because it follows one inmate, Kelly Dillon, um, and her lawyer, who was Cynthia Chandler, through this process of what was happening in the women's prison. So Kelly's story is she was in prison, and this is just like the heartbreaking thing that I think we forget about a lot of women who are in prison. And she went to prison because she killed her husband because he would have killed her. If he, it was definitely self-defense. She was a victim of domestic violence. There are Mm. many recorded instances of her going to the hospital after being abused, um, including one where he held a hot iron up to her neck and burned her and many other horrific injuries. And so in one of these altercations, she ended up killing him. She was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And this happens to so many women who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. It's abusive relationships. It's getting involved in, you know, drug Mm -hmm. trafficking and selling because Mm -hmm. they're involved through their significant others. I mean, yeah, there's Mm -hmm. just a lot of things that go on with women who are imprisoned. But so she goes to prison, leaving two young children at home. 
Hmm. for 15 years. And while she's in prison, she starts to have all of this pelvic pain. Um, And so she goes in to see the doctors in the prison at this time. And they told her that she had cysts on her ovaries. And so they'd need to go in. And I think also maybe fibroids on her uterus. No cysts is the main thing it was talking about. So they would need to go in um, and see what was going on and make sure she didn't have cancer. And they told her if they found cancer, that then they may have to remove her ovaries and her uterus. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, when someone's told you might have cancer. They're like, yeah, sure. Do whatever you have to do. Sign the papers, take care of things. She came out of the surgery and she said immediately when she came out, she felt like something was wrong. But the doctor told her everything was fine. We took some cysts. And she says she remembers asking the doctor, even coming out of anesthesia, if she would still be able to have children. And he said, yeah, I don't see why not. Fully knowing that he had Mm. taken this woman's uterus and ovaries out of her body. Because over the next year while she's in prison, she never has a period. She starts having panic attacks and anxiety. She's having night sweats. And she's she lost 100 pounds without trying because she had been put into surgical menopause. Uh, and with no hormones re- to replace Yeah, with no replacement hormones after it because they lied to her about what happened. Mm. And so she somehow mm. found this attorney, Cynthia Chandler, um, who was the co-founder of Justice Now, which is a nonprofit in California, focused on uh, um, like providing legal assistance to women in women's prisons. And so she contacts her and she, the lawyer encouraged her to get her medical records, which is where she finds out that she never had cancer and that her ovaries and fallopian tubes were removed. This doesn't say uterus. I thought that that was as well, but regardless, Hmm. if you don't have ovaries, you don't menstruate and you can't have any babies. Um, (sighs) And she said that she, she said I had intentionally been sterilized and I had been lied to about it because she wanted, they asked her when she talked to the doctor, if she wanted to have more children. And she said yes, because she had to leave her two young children to serve Mm -hmm. a 15 year sentence. Mm -hmm. She was very young. I think she was only in her early twenties when she went into prison. She's a black woman too, right? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she was like, when she got out, she could still have more kids. Mm -hmm. She dreamt of like having a good, healthy relationship with somebody who Mm -hmm. wasn't trying to kill her. Um, Mm -hmm. And then found out when she was released or during the time she was there that that was never going to happen. So then they go looking Mm -hmm. into things because of her case and they find all these other cases. So there's a group called Center for Investigative Reporting that basically outed everything that happened in California prisons at this time and wrote a big report that made this public. And they found that during this time, approximately 150 women were sterilized between 1997 and 2010 in the Valley state prison um, and one other prison in California um, that the state paid a total of, in these cases that they found a total of $147,000, $460,000 for sterilization procedures of women who were imprisoned at this time. <sighs> there was a particular doctor who was associated with many of those two. This is the OBGYN at Valley State Prison, Dr. James Heinrich. 
um, who also like still to this day defends what he did. He said mm-hmm. that that amount of money over a 10 year period compared to what you save in welfare paying no. for these nope. unwanted nope. children. Nope. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. That's what he said was no. a minimal amount of money. No. To pay. No. So no. this is, this was his, he just no. admits still <laughs> that uh-uh. this was his purpose. He says he was saving the state of California money because these are children that would have been on welfare and I'm that's more so, expensive. So disgusted right now. I've got like sick rage in my belly. Just, yeah. I think what's so extra shitty about this is like people in power that maintain these inequitable systems and structures that have under-resourced neighborhoods, schools, healthcare, et cetera, and then turn around and blame people for the outcomes of those systems and say, well, that's why you cost money for Mm -hmm. us. And so therefore we, you don't deserve to live or reproduce is like evil genius to create the systems that produce the reasons that you then point to, to justify further oppressing people, that system is so pernicious and awful and so deeply embedded in our country's history. It's, Mm -hmm. it makes me furious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we talked about this before when we talked about, like, I talked about how I've probably voiced thoughts of like, when I see people in the ER, people should not have so many children, Mm. but that being Mm. more of like, I don't want people to have children when they don't have the resources to help them, which is not their fault. Like I wish people mm-hmm. had better social structures and more access to the things that they needed, that their we as a society would take care of poverty more, not just limit the number of children that right. people can have and say that, that, that they're <sighs> the problem. So it's the problem mm-hmm. of not caring for people or people not being able to care for what they have due to the restrictions that occur because of the way our society is set up. I think um, that's the difference is like identifying like, Hey, it's really, really expensive to have kids, you mm-hmm. know, even if you're not like buying them fancy toys and signing them up for karate class, like it, it just is expensive. And so to say like, okay, therefore these people in poverty shouldn't have kids that is missing the root cause of the problem, which is a really fucked up social system that doesn't have safety nets for people. And that puts for more and more people in poverty every day. Anyway, Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the, mm-hmm. it's the same thing in schools where people write off kids, particularly kids of color and kids in poverty to say like, well, you know, odds are they're not going to graduate. Right. Those odds exist not because of those kids. Those odds right. exist because of deeply fucked up systems. So yeah. writing off the kids just signs their sentence like it. It just repeats the cycle. And that's not on those kids. And that's not on right. those families. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're pushing so, all my buttons today, man. I know. I know. And the thing is, is that there seems to be even more evidence that this particular doctor, Dr. Heinrich, was aware that what he was doing was not like federally allowable. So there, it, there were laws that federal funds could not be used um, to perform sterilizations on inmates. But so they got around that by using state funds. But even under that, these sterilizations were supposed to require approval. 
Because since 2006 in California, a judge ruled that medical care in California prisons was so bad that it violated the constitutional ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Oh, my God. And there's this receiver's office that was put over access and overseeing all medical care since that time. And they were supposed to approve any of these procedures from happening. It's So there's all this controversy. And I think the investigation showed that they did know these things were going on. But a lot of these cases did never came before the committees that were responsible for approving them. And that's because this doctor specifically and the medical manager at Valley State Prison would try to find ways around the rules by saying that these procedures were emergencies. Oh, okay. Question. This committee yeah. could, could have approved it and they, they would be within their rights to not inform the patient. That no, I think they would still have to approve it. They just had to get approval for using the state funds. Okay, but so, they still had to inform people yeah, that oh, they yeah. had done you this. You still had to have informed consent that this was. But being even, done. okay, so there's all sorts of ways that this all sorts and all asshole. sorts okay. of ways, all sorts yeah. of ways. Um, and then it just it brings up the question too: Is can anyone in prison truly give consent right. for something like right. this to happen? There's a power dynamic there. That no matter what kind of informed consent you're giving, how much can you really know that it is because of the Mm -hmm. circumstances they're under? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that came out of this whole process is that now um, they you can't do sterilizations on women in prison, which, again, some women groups have gotten very upset about because they say you're denying access to something that some women do want. And now they can't get it. But it's also like. If people didn't fucking abuse the system and do this kind of bullshit, then you wouldn't have to have those restrictions on everybody. But at some level, yeah. you have to protect people. I don't know. So, but it's it's also one of those things where, like, I'm glad you can have a law on the books that doesn't mean it's happening. So yeah. even I hear what you're saying. Like, I would rather that women have the full gamut of choice for mm-hmm. their bodies. Um, but even if you say like, okay, we're not going to ever have this. Like, there were already stop gaps in place that this guy was clearly getting around or just ignoring. So I don't know. That just makes me sus- just suspicious, I guess, of I, I would much rather have like rules and regulations on the books, but you that that shouldn't make us feel like, oh, good. Everything is great now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they interview one of the nurses who worked at these hospitals during this time, but she it's under like, you know, where you just see a shadow of a person and the voice is all oh, yeah. distorted because she's doing it anonymously. Mm-hmm. But even anonymously, she still says in the film, even if it's not medically necessary, she believes what Dr. Heinrich said that it could or would in the long run save state funds to perform these procedures. And she said, the ideal time to do them is just when you're already there. It just takes a couple more minutes, a couple more snips. And I can only assume this woman is white. She sounds, even with like the shadows and the distortion of it, she sounds pretty white. And like, just to so callously say, it's a couple minutes, it's a couple snips. It's not a big deal. We're saving the state money. Like, as if, I, I mean, I would imagine if someone was like, oh, we sterilized you to save the state money. It's one of those, like, not in my backyard things. Like, if it happens mm-hmm. to you, you're horrified and so upset. But if it happens to someone else, you're like, yeah, just dollars and cents. Just yeah. 
doing our budget, balancing our books until it comes to you. I mean, I think when I think of white feminism, that's also, I think, a characteristic of so much of it is caring about an issue when we're personally impacted. And then if we're not personally impacted, like the injustice is justifiable. Like, well, I guess it just, if you just look at it from this way, it kind of makes sense until you, you know, I don't think generally in my experience that white women, and I'm, I'm talking about white progressive women here. Like our, I think we can do better at, um, caring about something that doesn't personally impact us. Oh my gosh. I think we need to do better at that. Right. Exactly. Like if it has to personally impact you for you to give a shit about it, then you can definitely guarantee that you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I believe, and it's been like a little bit since I watched this documentary. I don't think that Miss Dillon actually was awarded anything. I remember part mm-hmm. of the documentary showing that there was like zero, like the paperwork actually where it said like $0 were owed to her. Um, for what Mm. happened to her, which is Mm. really infuriating. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, a belly of the beast, super interesting to watch. You just have to figure if this was Mm. going on at like two prisons in California, this is going on in other places as well. Like it just had to have been. Yeah. It would be strange if those were like the complete outliers. Yeah. I mean, we can blame it on Reagan for sure. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but this, but Kelly, no, Kelly this was Dillon's after. Case You're right. Was this like, wasn't in the seventies. You know, it was probably going on right? in the seventies, though. Yeah, yeah, this was two thousands. This one wasn't going on in the seventies. Although another interesting thing that I wrote down, it basically or specifically on women's prisons, is that one study went back and looked at San Quentin State Prison, and prior mm-hmm. to nineteen forty one, so way before in the beginning of the eugenics, over six hundred sterilizations were documented. At San Quentin mm. at that point in time. So this mm. has been happening to women who are imprisoned for a long, long time. Hmm. Okay. I'm also curious that this is sort of a tangent. Who knows? I mean, truly, who knows? It's, I'm sure it depends. But I wonder if the people who are pro forced sterilization are also people who are anti-abortion. And maybe it just depends. But I'd be curious oh. to know like, mm. where that nurse falls or where that doctor falls on like giving women access to abortion. I don't know. Right. I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to make any conjecture because I, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it just depends on the person, but it feels like that's a right place for some pretty deep, um, hypocrisy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It probably just depends. Okay. Mm -hmm. Go back to the seventies and give us more. Okay. Back to the seventies. We're going to talk about, um, sterilization of native Americans. I think I brought this up like briefly in one of the previous episodes. Um, but so at the same point in time, what's happening in the native American community is that there used to be the Bureau of Indian affairs, which oversaw healthcare in Native American communities. But there was some argument about whether or not um, there was adequate care being given. And so in there was a transfer of from the Bureau of Public Affairs taking care of the health care um, for Native American people over to the United States Public Health Service because it was said that they could offer better health care and more resources to these communities. Mm. And so then that's where you get 
Indian Health Services from. And there was a lot of controversy over this because Bureau of Indian Affairs, from what I read or understood at least, was mainly controlled by Native American people. And so they mm-hmm. saw this transfer as them losing control mm-hmm. over their own health care, which they were, in this case at least, one kajillion D percent right about. Um, <laughs> because now you have um, Indian Health Services and you have one centralized government controlled place that native americans are getting their health care from and this is during the 1970s when you have this family planning act and all of the factors that we've already talked about and you have the funding for these family planning quote-unquote options for people who are poor and of course a lot of native americans are falling under this and you also have what we talked about with the two children idea that was going on at this time. And the numbers at that time, point in time were that Native American families were having an average of just over six children hmm. per hmm. woman. And this was seen as a very large problem because by there's the by US the government? Pow- yes, by the US government because they said at that rate it was speculated that the Native American population would at least double by the early 80s. God forbid. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> look at where we're at now. <sighs> um, and so now, so this, going into this, this is the context of what's happening. Um, so they start the exact same shit with these women. When they're in labor, when they go in seeking services, they are basically coercing these women into getting C-sections. So they're using at the time of delivery, like the, you have to do this to get pain medications, your child's in danger, you have to agree to this surgery. But beforehand, there's also claims that they would say that they would take the children that they had away from them. If they Mm -hmm. didn't agree to surgery, they were threatened to be cut off from their benefits. If they had any other children, Mm -hmm. they were told that they were bad mothers. If they kept having more children because they couldn't take care of them. Um, Mm -hmm. The same thing being told, like if you have to have repeated C-sections, it's dangerous for you. So all of this same bullshit was going on. And it's so standard that it makes it seem like there must've been some sort of script or some sort Mm -hmm. of like thing that was going on that was not, just these individual doctors taking this into their own hands. So the estimates of this range anywhere from 25% to 50% of Native American women were sterilized in the 70s by Indian Health Services. This is definitely like another rabbit hole we should go down because I know there's also a lot about um like forced foster care and forced adoptions and there's just a whole like a whole lot going on the fact that you have communities and nations of people that survived attempts at genocide Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then trying to have children it (laughs) yeah so there's an entire paper that's really really good about this it's like 
40 pages long and it's, it appears to be written um, by this guy who was just like in a class and wrote it for a, a college class in 2011. And we'll mm-hmm. link to it. I found it on that website where you can find all of the different States eugenics laws. Oh, right. You, but you talked about that. yeah, his last name. Well, I shouldn't even say his, why do I say that? I don't know. Cause in the paper it just says, <laughs> it says D Forbes. Who oh, so who knows? Yeah. Um, the paper is called compulsory sterilization of native Americans and racist motivations behind public policies. And he goes through the history of like native American treatment and yeah, basically like the already forced genocide of those people, all of the, um, attempts to assimilate them into American culture. Mm-hmm. And then this attempt to just basically wipe them out through sterilization. It's very in depth. It's very, very, very good. Um, so we'll link to that as well. So everybody can see that, but it's all the same stuff. They were supposedly like given these choices, but they were very coerced, whether or not it was understood um, what was happening to them. And then definitely evidence that a lot of these women did not know what happened to them until after it had been performed. So all the same stuff. That's Ugh. totally horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two very contemporary things happening. One that we just heard about um, in last year was whistleblower Don Wooten, who was a nurse mm. in an ICE detention facility in Georgia, mm. who um, basically outed several things that were going on in ICE detention. A lot of it was focused around their lack of any sort of protection for people who were being held or for staff to protect them against COVID. Um, and their lack of testing, their lack of treatment, like just zero attempts to mitigate COVID just raging through like this right ICE from detention the start, facility. 2020. Yeah, just right okay. from the beginning. She brought up a lot of this stuff. But then she also noted that there was a very strange number of hysterectomies that she was hearing about from detained women happening. Like young people who she's like, I've been a nurse for a long time. Like, this is not right that all of these people who are just coincidentally being held as illegal immigrants are now also getting hysterectomies when they're in ICE detention. So she started, like, bringing this up to superiors before it came out in the public. And she absolutely faced all sorts of ostracization. She um, was demoted from her job. She was put on to, like, part-time. She was told many times to mind her own business that this was Mm. basically above her and she needed to stop like sticking her nose into it. Um, But she still. Oh yeah. These are, these are undocumented people seeking asylum, right? Yes. That are in these detention centers. That are then in these detention centers that are then like seeking care for other medical problems or pregnant and delivering. And they're ending Mm up receiving hysterectomies. Um, So she told that she was told that she overreacted and she was confused and that this isn't really happening. And she's like, no, I know what's going on. Again, she talks about like a grandmother who taught her, like, when you see something, you have to speak up regardless Mm. of what you feel like the threat is to you. And she is Mm. a black woman. um, Mm. And she just kept going despite like losing her job, despite being threatened. She's like, I'm not going to allow this to happen. This has happened Mm -hmm. in our history and I'm not Mm going to allow this to happen. And so she ended up taking it public. Um, and 
she, oh, one of the quotes she said that in the complaint is that there was one particular gynecologist who was known as the uterus collector. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone he sees, he takes out their uteruses or their tubes is what he said. I think something you I mean, said is really haunting. The fact that Don Wooten said she knows that this has happened in her history. Mm-hmm. That right there, history inoculates you from gaslighting. Like the yeah. fact that she could say, uh-uh, no, 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 I'm not crazy. This has happened before. It's not outside the realm of possibility is incredibly powerful. That to me is a testament for why we need to learn these histories. Yep. Yeah. So obviously this was last year. And so hmm. all of this is still being wow. investigated. This facility that she particularly exposed has been shut down. It can no longer hold immigrants seeking asylum. So mm. that's, I guess, one so of where's the that doctor going to get somewhere his else for the collection? For the collection, going to yeah. get them. Yeah, um, we're gonna. Ugh. I'm gonna link to a couple of things to get more information on this because there's an NPR article, mm. and then there's a really great panel that's so 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 good that she talks about, and that there's a um, a couple. There's several other people on it that was done by a group called Project South. Um, and it was actually moderated by a woman that we are interviewing next week. So I'm excited to talk to her more about this, but it was moderated by Kara Page. Um, and she talks to Dawn and some of the women that were held in these detention facilities and then some oh other God. people in the medical or it's, it's such a good panel to listen to. So <sighs> we'll talk about that. And then, so we'll talk more about that, hopefully with Kara next week. So. Yeah, sure. Just, it's so amazing to listen to this Don Wooten, this nurse who did this is just like incredible, like such mm-hmm. an inspiration. She's still as having, she's still facing blowbacks of it. She lost her job and she, other people won't hire her because she blew the whistle on this still. Mm-hmm. It's like someone out there, there's a nursing shortage. Give this woman a job. What the right, hell? Right. Um, Anyway, then the last thing that I wanted to just talk about, and we can link to more information about this is something that is also still happening and still seen as something positive by many people. And that is something called the crack program crack as in like the drug crack, but it's actually an acronym. Um, and this is now known. They renamed it because they decided maybe that wasn't the best thing. It's also known now as project prevention, but crack stood for children requiring a caring community community with a K because that's real cute. Ew, um, that just makes me think of something else that has three Ks. Another K, exactly. Lots of Ks mm-hmm. in it. Um, this is a foundation that was founded by Bob- Barbara Harris in California, freaking California, mm-hmm. in 1997. Mm-hmm. She and her husband were, um, I think they were foster parents, and then they adopted several children Um, And several of the children they adopted had been born to drug addicted mothers. I mean, not anything against, of course she is. Uh (laughs) She's so a rich white lady, Um, you know, and nothing not to say that people who do foster work, people who adopt children. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Like just sainthood people, but not this woman, I'm going to (laughs) say, because she just takes this a step further and she's like, we've got to stop this from happening And her idea of how we stop this from happening is to start a program where you pay addicts to get sterilized. Um, So it initially started that they were paying women, I think, $200 
to get sterilized if they're on drugs. Now it's up to a whole whopping $300. Um, and they advertise in places with high addiction, like homeless, um, areas, areas with high homelessness in shelters, all of that kind of stuff that women, they say, if you're a drug addict or addicted to alcohol, women or men, you can come get tubal ligations, vasectomies, and they also offer some long-term birth control devices like intrauterine devices. Um, but the thing is, here you are offering money to people who have an addiction that requires money to pay for that addiction and how that cannot be seen as an exploitative thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand how this mm -hmm. gets out. The organization used advertising that had phrases such as don't let pregnancy get in the way of your crack habit. Wait, what? Yeah. This is one of the things they put on flyers and billboards. Don't let pregnancy get in the way of your crack habit. They thought that's cute and catchy. So we'll pay you so you can. They're basically saying we'll give you money for crack if you come get sterilized. There's another one that actually has a picture on the website that we can post. It says it shows a picture of a baby and it says she has her daddy's eyes and her mommy's heroin addiction. Yeah. 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 Um, this woman has been interviewed on like 60 minutes, other news programs. And she has quotes on these programs where she says, we don't allow dogs to breed. We spay them. We neuter them. We try to keep them from having unwanted puppies. And yet these women are literally having litters of children. Oh my God. Yeah. We can't, <laughs> she like similarly said, we campaign to neuter dogs and yet we allow women to have 10 or 12 kids that they can't take care of. Apparently she has a son um, who is more educated than her, um, who was at Stanford at the time. And he asked her to, he said, mom, please don't ever say things like that again. And she says this in her interview, her mom, her son asked her not to say that. And she said, but it's the truth. They don't just have one and two babies. They have litters. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And her defense of things is she is just like, I, well, I don't care if people criticize me for being harsh against these women. She basically says she doesn't care about these women. It's about children to her. She says, I guess it depends on where your heart is. Some people are so into the women and their rights to get pregnant that they seem to forget the rights of kids. They act like these children don't matter. People need to realize these women don't want to have babies that are taken away from them. Nothing positive comes to women who have eight children taken away from them. And this is like <laughs> the problem uh, my brain with hurts. white women. And the way that we see our access to reproductive care and the right to like limit the number of children we have. And we've talked about this before. You and I are all for reproductive rights for women and the ability to limit that and not to have children if you don't want to. But on the other hand, there are reproductive rights of having children of course, like, of course. Women have the right to have children. And obviously, people who are addicted to drugs 
are not in a good decision making capacity in that way necessarily either. I'm not saying that these women are responsibly deciding to have children or even want to have them once they're pregnant, but you can't just take that the other way and say, well, then we're going to sterilize them. Again, it's just, it's what you talked about before, where you take a problem and you make these women responsible for the problem. They blame them for the outcome again, instead of going to the heart of a problem for addiction. But she's also Mm -hmm. saying, you know, this is cheaper than treating their addiction problem. It costs tens of thousands of dollars or to hundreds of thousands of dollars to put women in rehab and we can sterilize them for 300 bucks. And it's like, I mean, the problem in this, and they say say they have um, programs still operating in all 50 states currently. As of December 2020, they had sterilized, and this is on their website. They put this all on there. 7,547 clients. Um, 61% of those are white, 20% black, 10% Hispanic, and then uh, the rest of them non-categorized. But that's definitely disproportionate to the population. Oh, disproportionate to the general population. And Mm -hmm. it just feels just like you're a garbage person Mm -hmm. and like we don't want you to have kids. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that a child born of addiction doesn't have great needs and care. Like, yes, we know that's medically factual. It just, again, like you're not addressing the problem. You're just, you're not addressing the underlying problem and you're totally devalued. I mean, this woman has no problem. Dehumanizing them. Like they're just dogs. dogs. Yeah. They're just dogs. Yeah, Yeah. They're just dogs having litters. Of children. I mean, Uh, without, yeah, yep, yep. I mean, again, it's like a refusal to acknowledge root causes of problems at all in any way, shape, or form. Um, Oh, that's really disgusting. So I think you asked me, like, before when we talked about sterilization in the 30s and 40s and the Buck versus Bell case and all of that, you're just like, so when did all of this stop? And I was like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Not. It has not. It's, it's still still happening. Um, I mean, the so, part yeah. about this organization that makes me, I mean, there's just a lot I'm going to be processing and thinking about, but sterilization for women is a permanent decision. Permanent. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and when you are in dire straits, whether it's because you're in emergency C-section or you are facing an addiction to make a decision that's permanent, like hopefully these women get help and come out of an addiction and would be in a place where they, it, you know, they would feel better about having kids or whatever. Yeah. It, it, it's such a permanent, it's, it's taking advantage of people at their most at vulnerable a low, moments yeah. Yeah. that makes me just the most disgusted. Like what, how, how is that humane? How is that loving in any way to, to like take just the fact that it's like $300 that for a lifetime of infertility. Right. I mean, especially the, now you when like IUDs are so IUDs are so accessible and so easy. Like tubal sterilization is an invasive surgical procedure. I mean, laparoscopic, but still like, invasive and permanent. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. while these women are, are addicted and trying to hopefully get help for that, like you can use an IUD, it can be removed, and they offer that, and some of the women get that. But I think it was, I, I mean, upwards of 
uh, over half of the women who are receiving permanent sterilization for this problem. Again, yeah. like this permanent solution to what may not be a permanent problem. I mean, that hopefully is not a permanent problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Well, thank you for the nightmares and, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. So, so much, we're going to so have much, interviews so next week and I'm really excited about talking to Kara Page and also, yeah, me too. Um, Wait someone that she works yet. with. Oh, right. There's Kara, two people. Yeah. Two Kara and Susan. Yep. Yeah. And then also an, another person, um, your friend that we're going to talk to. So some yeah, stuff. one in healthcare and one in education. How eugenics mm-hmm. is like currently playing out in both of those fields, um, yeah. where white women are disproportionately represented as professionals. So, yeah, great. Anyway, okay, okay, I guys, am it was grateful. Fun. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> oh, um, thanks. I'll talk yeah. to you soon. And okay. everybody, health. Yeah, stay well, look up, stay safe. look up these links too, because there's so much more information, and the documentaries no, are fantastic. And yeah. Uh, All right. Okay. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.